Let's open up our Trinity books and um, turn to page 281. See if we can't see some more people in here. 281. Continuing with our theme on heaven, again, the verses here describe the heavenly uh, places where the saints will gather together. 
time of prayer and praise, um, some things we want to pray for. <laughs> John Gaskell will be here this morning uh, in the morning service from Providence. Um, the, uh, we asked Pastor that he might want to hang around the house a little bit longer with, uh, to help with Trish and, and Sybil and so on. And so he agreed to do that. Um, so we want to pray for the Waldens um, and pray for Sybil. And um, Linda's up from Tennessee, and uh, Chris and Jonathan's been in and out. I haven't heard what Shane's plans are. So I want to pray for them. Continue to pray for Jan Brown and, and Ken as he takes care of her. I haven't talked to him this week, so I'm not sure what the situation is. Um, word of praise, uh, we got new front steps. Uh, so that's, we're waiting for that to be cured. And right now the handrails are being sandblasted and, and repainted. So they'll be installed uh, once the cement is cured. So that's a praise. Um, want to continue to pray for Martha and her leg situation. She's been diagnosed with phlebitis. So um, we pray that that pain would go away. Uh, any other requests? Rhonda, what about your cousins that we prayed for before? What's it? And what was her name again? Her name? Kathy. Kathy. So pray for Kathy. We have tennises are away this weekend, I think. So pray for them. Anybody else? Well, thank praise God we had a good time at. Uh, at Wade and Lisa's yesterday, and uh, seems like a good time was had by all. That was a positive thing. Nothing else will take these things before our Lord. <clears throat> Lord God, we come before you in awesome love and admiration. Lord God, we pray that you would give us a humble heart, a bent knee, as we come before your throne. Lord, we are unworthy people. We are sinful people. But Lord God, you have shined upon us with your love. You have sent your spirit to minister to us. You have spoken to us through your word. And you have sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to be our Lord and Savior and our King. Lord, we thank you for all these blessings. We thank you for the daily ministering unto us for our physical and spiritual needs. We thank you for the opportunity to come together in this place, to be united in one, serving the one living true God. We pray, Lord, that 
we might share in each other's burdens, share in each other's joys and sorrows, lift each other up. So today, Lord, we, we pray for the Waldens. We pray for strength, patience, and endurance. Um, give them your love and your comfort through your spirit and your word. Uh, Lord God, this is a difficult time, and, and we pray, Lord, that uh, you, you would comfort them. We ask you, Lord, as well, to be with Brother John Gaskell as he comes to preach your word, that, Lord, he would open that word up and, and that would speak directly to our hearts. Feed us from your word today, we ask. We pray as well, Lord, for Martha and, and her leg and her recovery. We pray, Lord, that uh, the phlebitis would ease up and the pain would, would dissipate. We thank you for the good time we had yesterday with Wade and Lisa. We thank you for the opportunity to uh, enjoy each other's company. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless that uh, time together. Be with Brother Ken and Sister Jan Brown. We pray, Lord, that as they struggle through these difficult times, that they may be drawn closer to you, and that, Lord, your love would overflow, and that you would minister to them, and that you would heal Jan and restore her, we pray. Be with uh, Kathy uh, as that family struggles as to her condition, and we pray, Lord, that uh, uh, your love and presence would be among them, and give the doctors wisdom as to how to handle her case. Lord, we pray that you'd be with us uh, throughout this, your Lord's Day, the Sabbath day that we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, the pastor invited you to be part of his class. And today I thank Tristan for coming up and be part of our class. So um, we will continue on in our study about unseen realities and discussing heaven, continue our discussion. I'm thinking that today will probably be the last uh, time we'll talk about this, uh, at least in this series. So the last time I was up here, uh, we looked at what is referred to as the present heaven or the intermediate heaven, and we mentioned um, the present hell as well. We discussed what people believe will happen to them when they die, and then we looked at the scripture and found truth in what really will happen when one passes from this earth. We looked at how Jesus' work of redemption upon the cross, not only was God's plan of salvation to uh, save sinful men and women, but also a means of lifting up the curse from God's groaning creation. All of this was in preparation for his new earth and new heaven. So before we leave this study on the present heaven, let me uh, do a summary of what we might expect to find in the present heaven 
upon our departure from earth and <clears throat> with the condition of civil about ready to leave us, um, it might be a, um, a more of interest to us if on these observations. So if you will, <clears throat> turn in your Bibles to Revelations um, chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6 and uh, verses 9 through 11. When he opened up the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony that they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. Well, with the help of Pastor Randy Alcorn, I'd like to make some observations about the present heaven as found in these uh, few scriptures. When these people, the martyrs, died on earth, they were relocated to heaven. They didn't fade into nothingness or went into soul sleep. We discussed those topics in the past. These people in heaven were the same ones killed for Christ on earth. This then shows a kind of a direct link between their identity on earth and their identity in heaven. Those in the present heaven are not different people. They are the same people. They've just been relocated. Verse 10 says, They called out, which suggests that they are able to express themselves audibly in the present heaven. The martyrs are fully conscious they're rational, and they're aware of each other and of God. And to some extent, they're aware of what's going on on the earth. Those in heaven, it seems to be free to ask God questions, which means that they have an audience with God. It also means that they need to learn. In heaven, people desire understanding and pursue after it. And I will talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes when we talk about the eternal heaven. People in heaven have an idea of what is happening on earth. The martyrs know enough to realize that those who killed them have not yet been judged. 
they seem to have some memory of what happened on earth, for the martyrs knew they had been murdered for the cause of Christ. Those in heaven are distinct individuals. It says, then each of them was given a white robe. So unlike some of the New Age believers who believe that when you die, your energies are merged all together to become one with the universe, it says here that they were individually given white robes. They were distinct individuals. The martyrs wearing robes suggest the possibility of actual physical forms because disembodied spirits don't presumably wear robes. But could be that the robes are symbolic. But it doesn't mean that they couldn't also be physical. At least to John, who wrote the book of Revelations, they appeared to be physical. That's something he could actually see and something he could record and write about in this book. God promises to fulfill the martyr's request, but says they will have to wait a little longer. Those in the present heaven live in anticipation of the full, full, I'm sorry, future fulfillment of God's promises. Unlike eternal heaven, where there will be no more sin or curse or suffering, the present heaven coexists with and watches over an earth still under sin, the curse, and suffering. And you can see by giving this, asking this question, how long, and God's response is, wait a little longer, there's still this element of time involved here. Um, to what extent, I'm, I'm not saying, but we know it's not eternal. It's only temporary. Those in heaven are well aware of God's attributes. They call him sovereign, they call him holy, and they call him true. And with this revelation of who he is, it makes his judgment of sin much more understandable to those in the present heaven. We see from these verses that our sovereign God knows down to the last detail all that is happening and will happen on earth, including every drop of blood shed and every bit of suffering his chosen children will endure. The 20th century, we just, it's hard to believe it's 20-some years ago, but the 20th century was the bloodiest century on record in the history of man. And more Christians were killed or martyred for the cause of Christ in that century 
than any other time in the history of the church. So we see the relevance here to wait for your brothers and sisters. So this is just a bit of information and insight, I think, that we can grasp about the present heaven as we look at these few verses. Was there something else that struck your mind or that I didn't mention? There's a bunch of other things we could have included here, but anything else cross your mind from these verses about the present heaven? mention that. Well, I didn't find anything along those lines, but that's a good question. Right, it'll be Christ-centered. They won't be obsessed with what's going on. They may pray, from what I've read, they may pray on our behalf to the throne, uh, but we don't pray to them to pray for us or anything like that. Um, Well, we'll move on then and take a look at the eternal heaven and um, kind of explore some of the ideas there. So we've already briefly looked at some of the misconceptions that men have of heaven, being on clouds and harps and, and that kind of thing. 
But some of uh, non-Christians or atheists complain that heaven will be a real drag and all the things that they enjoy here on earth, such as literature and art and food and music and architecture and poetry and culture, etc., will be absent from heaven, so they have no interest in going there. Well, I think I'm going to just pick out two points here and uh, kind of react to that concept and that idea. First of all, God will be there. And that will be more than sufficient. As he is the author and source of everything that is true, beautiful, and wonderful, there will be more than enough things to wonder and be amazed by. If heaven had nothing else for us, Except God, that would be sufficient. It's sufficient for all eternity. Consider this statement from Revelation 21.3. God himself will be with them. God himself will be with him, them. God won't send a representative. He will actually come to live among among us on the new earth. Pastor Stephen Lawson explains it this way. God's glory will fill and permeate the entire new heaven, not just one centralized place. Thus, wherever we go in heaven, we will be in the immediate presence of the full glory of God. Wherever we go, we will enjoy the complete manifestation of God's presence. Throughout all eternity, we will never be separated from the direct, unhindered fellowship of God. Unlike the Holy of Holies, where God was present in the temple in that one limited area, in the new heaven, he will permeate and go about, we, can't, we will not be able to escape his presence. He'll be, and we will uh, be joyful and, and, and at peace in that presence. It's a God-centered, Christ-centered place. But many contemporary approaches to heaven either leave God out or put him in secondary supportive positions. You may recall a a best-selling novel, uh, The Five People You Meet in Heaven, written by a Detroit radio personality and sports writer. It tells of a tale of a man who feels lonely and unimportant, and he dies and goes to heaven and meets five people who tell him that his life really did matter. He discovers forgiveness and acceptance. But the book fails to present Jesus Christ as the object of our saving faith. Instead, heaven is painted as a place that isn't about God, but it's all about us. A heaven without God's glory, but all about us. It doesn't show heaven that displays God and all his incomprehensible grace given to undeserving sinners. Instead, it's about our goodness and our self-centeredness. 
In this modern interpretation of heaven, man is the center of the universe, and God only plays a supporting role. The Bible and Scripture knows nothing of a heaven filled with this kind of human self-centeredness. But rather, heaven is a place that is preoccupied and taken up with the person of Jesus Christ. In Eden, God came down to earth, the home of man, whenever he wished. We see that in Genesis 3.8. On the new earth, God and mankind will be able to come to each other whenever they desire. We will not have to leave home to visit God, nor will God leave his home to visit us. God and mankind will live together in the same home, the new earth. God declared this in his scripture. Leviticus 26, 11 through 12. I will put my dwelling place among you, and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. Ezekiel 37, 27. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. 2 Corinthians 6.16 I will live with them and walk among them, and I'll be their God, and they will be my people. The union of God of heaven and the people of earth will also bring about a union of heaven and earth. Nothing will separate us from God, and nothing will separate earth from heaven. Once God and mankind dwell together, there will be no difference between heaven and earth. And earth will become heaven, and it will truly be a heaven on earth. Not only will God come to dwell with us on earth, but he will also bring with him the new Jerusalem, an entire city of people, structures, streets, walls, rivers, and trees that is now in the present heaven. Hebrews 11:16 says, He has prepared a city for them. Notice the verse doesn't say he will prepare a city for them or that he is preparing a city for them, but he has prepared it suggests that the new Jerusalem is already there in the present heaven. When God fashions the new earth, he will relocate the city from heaven to the new earth. Now that is incomprehensible to me, but for God it's no problem. But have you ever seen anybody move a house where the company comes in and jacks the house up and puts timbers under there to support it, and then they have to get it up on the flatbed and then move this house on the truck, trying not to crack the windows and the, and the plaster inside. <laughs> Even if you've only seen these pre-manufactured homes on the highways where half is on one truck and half is on the other, still a, a very amazing task and difficult one when you think about it. 
But God's going to relocate an entire city and everything that goes with it. The new Jerusalem is built on the shape of a cube. The height, the width, and the depth are all the same size. It's built on an uh, example of the Holy of Holies in the temple, which was a cube. Just to give you a bit of perspective of what we're talking about, it would take up the space from the Canadian-American border to the north, to the Mexican-American border in the south, from the Appalachian Mountains in the east to the coast, California coast in the west, approximately that size according to uh, the dimensions given in, in, the, in Scripture. But that's just the square. That's about 1,400 miles on each side. It's also 1,400 miles high if these dimensions are accurate and, and, uh, or not symbolic. But I have no reason to believe they're not accurate. So keep in mind that a commercial airplane flies about five miles high and the Hubble telescope is about 250 miles high. We're talking about a structure that's 1,400 miles high. Amazing. It is possible that the current residents of the present heaven are already living in that city, or it may be set aside waiting for all the residents to occupy it once when he brings it down to the new earth. God's new center of government will be the new earth. This will bring about the answer to the section in the Lord's Prayer, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When he comes down with the new Jerusalem, God's will shall be carried out on the new earth as it is in the present heaven at this time. Okay, we've seen a sight of the eternal heaven which is the new earth. We have the most important thing in heaven revealed to us. God himself will be with them. And we have God's heavenly throne of power coming down out of heaven in the form of the new Jerusalem. So let's begin to add some details and flesh out this idea of eternal heaven. Turn in scripture to... um, your Bibles to Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Wade, would you read that? Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man. 
Jason, can you turn over to chapter 2 and read verse 15? 15. I think Martha can tell you, and my wife and anybody else in here who keeps a garden, um, it's not easy. It's hard work. <clears throat> it takes a lot of time and effort to make and maintain a fruitful and well-ordered garden. And this harnessing and taming of nature to make it fit and useful for mankind is what we refer to, this, these verses here, is, is what we refer to as the culture mandate or creation mandate. It's just not about tending a garden, but it's about creating a civilization. Adam and Eve are to have children and their children and children, and they were supposed to take the effects of the Garden of Eden and spread it across the entire world, the earth. That was the mandate of God, to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth It's not just about, again, tending the garden. Recall that these orders were given before the fall, and they were part of God's very good created order that he wanted to establish for man. True, the fall greatly damaged and hindered this work, along with everything else. But the command continues, the cultural mandate. is about exercising dominion over the earth, subduing it, developing it, and all of its potential. Anthony Hokema, in his book, The Bible and the Future, says this, The doctrine of the new earth is important for, <clears throat> for a proper grasp of the full dimensions of God's redemptive program. In the beginning, so we read in Genesis, God created the heavens and the earth, because of man's fall to sin, a curse was pronounced over the creation. God now sends his son into the world to redeem that creation from the results of sin. The work of Christ, therefore, is not just to save certain individuals, not even save an innumerable throng of blood-brought people. The total work of Christ is nothing less than to redeem the entire creation from the effect of sin. That purpose will not be accomplished until God has ushered in the new earth, until paradise lost has become paradise regained. We need to, a clear understanding of the doctrine of the new earth, therefore, in order to see God's redemptive program in a cosmic dimension. We need to realize that God will not be satisfied until the entire universe has been purged of all the results of man's fall. End of quote. I believe that the concern that God had at first when he created the world, of all of his pronouncements as being very good, will be continued into the next life. It will be different, and it will be better, and it will be perfected, but we will reflect God's original intentions when he first made man and made all of his surroundings. 
That is God, that is God the creator of human culture. This job description to our first parents continues not only now, even after the fall, but will do so in the future. God wants us to be sub-creators, like J.R. Tolkien put it, and continue to be creative as we develop and cultivate the world around us. I believe the work of culture making and civilization building that Adam and Eve were first tasked to do will always be with us, not just now, but in the near heavens and in the new earth. Of course, much of that life is unclear to us because scripture only tells us so much about it. But knowing what we do about God's good plans and intentions at creation, to me it makes sense to see this emphasis on culture and civilization as being an ongoing project. From here to eternity, this has always been God's plan for us, and the fall notwithstanding, he will accomplish his eternal purposes. He will accomplish what he first set out to do. Just because the redeemed go there with new uh, resurrected bodies does not mean we become like God. We're not omniscient. We're not omnipresent. We're not omnipotent. And so on. We may well keep growing and learning and developing. There's so much to discover in this universe we have so little time and opportunity to do it. The list of books that I'd like to read is too long for my lifetime. The music I'd like to listen to, I will never be able to. The places I'd like to go is unending. So I look forward to discovering new things in heaven forever and ever. At the end of each day, I'll have the same amount of time left as I did the day before. The time I didn't learn that day, or the things I didn't learn that day, the people I didn't meet that day, the things I didn't get to do that day, I'll be able to do next day. I can still learn, see, or do. The things that I want to do will not crumble. The people I want to meet will not die and neither will I. We'll spend a lot of our time contemplating God's person and his works, talking with him and Christ over dinner, or long walks, or discussing them around a fire. Intellectual curiosity isn't part of the curse, it's God's blessing on his image bearers. He made us with futile, fertile, uh, curious minds so that we might seek after truth and seek after him, our greatest source of pleasure. In heaven, our intellectual curiosity will surely surface and be satisfied and continue to be satisfied forever and ever and ever. Pastor Randy Alcorn applies this heavenly culture mandate on a practical level. He says, quote, 
Think of what it would be like to discuss science with Isaac Newton, Michael Faraday, Thomas Edison, to discuss mathematics with Pascal. Think of reading and discussing and writings of C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and discussing them with the authors who wrote them. How would you like to talk about the power of fiction at a round table with John Milton and Daniel Defoe and Victor Hugo? How about discussing God's attributes with A.W. Pink or A.W. Tozer and J.I. Packard? Or talking theology with Augustine, Aquinas, Calvin, and Luther? And then if there's a difference in the discussion, call Jesus over and have him clarify those things. Imagine discussing the sermons of George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, George Feeney, and Charles Spurgeon with the preachers themselves. We're talking about faith with George Mueller and Bill Bright and then listening to their stories. You could cover the Civil War era with Abraham Lincoln and Harriet Beecher Stowe, or the history of missions with William Carey, Lottie Moon, and Hudson and Taylor. End of quote. That was Alcorn's idea of what we will be doing, some of the things we'll be doing. Again, there's some conjecture there, but I think that would answer the second point of the atheists, why they, they would not miss out on culture and civilization. All those things will be there and much more for us to learn and partake in. However, remember that God himself will always be the main object of our attention. He will be the object of our affection and our adoration. But the whole company of redeemed will be so great to be around with as well. And that's how God intended it to be from the very beginning. Well, this brief study probably raises more questions than it answers about heaven. What will our resurrected bodies be like? What will we what kind of relationships will be there? Will there be pets in heaven? Jonathan Edwards thought there would be. He studied heaven a lot. But that was his position. A lot of questions are raised, but I think we'll leave it in God's hands and be totally amazed when we get there and see what he has for us. Any comments or questions as we close? Well, we are one with Christ 
through our, through our the, the work of Christ and his shed blood. So that we're united in that way, which would, right. So I believe that uh, that would be the pathway in which we would be revealed to be like him. Uh, we're sharing that with him. But I, it it's boggles my mind. I don't know how that's all going to work out. Anybody else? Okay. Well, we'll close in prayer. Uh, Wade, would you close us, please? Amen. You're dismissed.